Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Anne-Marie Priest. She's a writer and lecturer at Central Queensland University. She's here to talk about her new book, A Free Flame, Australian Women Writers and Vocation in the 20th Century. It's published by UWA Publishing in February 2018. Anne-Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to have you on. So you begin the book by saying that for writers of all stripes, to talk about a sense of calling is commonplace these days. Did you feel that calling? How did you come to to be a writer and to write about this topic? (laughs) Hmm, That's an interesting question. Uh, Yes, I guess I would have to say I did. And that probably was part of what got me interested in this. But it was also, it really came out of, excuse me, it really came out of these writers' lives themselves. I've had kind of a long-standing interest in these women, these Australian women and their life stories. And so whenever I see anything in a secondhand bookshop, autobiographical writings, a book of letters or a book of memoirs or something, I always pick it up and and read it. And I just was struck by their sense of vocation, their sense of being called to be a writer. And I mean, their situation is a bit different than mine because they were all brought up in the first half of the 20th century in this culture where really the idea of the artist was essentially male, was gendered masculine. So I really just kind of came up against this question. How did these women who are all growing up at this time in this particular culture develop a sense of vocation to be an artist when the whole idea of being an artist and a writer in this case was actually, was was gender male, was inimical to them as women? And what I was reading about these women, they had these full-on romantic ideas about the creative artist. Like, the urge to express themselves, this passion to be a writer, this kind of idealizing of the writer's role. But, you know, so, so it was a full-blown idea of what the writer was. But at the same time, they had this, this concept of themselves as women, which conflicted with that, which is that women can't put themselves first, that women's role is to serve others. And, you know, a woman's highest creative expression is their children. So it's just that, that conflict that the woman and the artist really, in, at that time in history, were opposing identities. And so I really wanted to explore how they came to, to think of themselves as writers and how on earth they could live that out in a culture where those two things just, just didn't click. It's really fascinating. And, and you really dive deeply into the lives of these uh, four women. How did you select? They, it was really partly just my own interest uh, and partly but just as I described, just reading the bits and pieces that I read initially about them from usually from their own memoirs. Only one of those four women has actually had a full length biography written about her. That's Christina Stead. Although I know there are actually another two now underway. I know that because I'm doing one of them on Gwen Harwood and uh, Nicole Moore's doing one on Dorothy Hewitt. 
But I guess the point is that there wasn't a huge amount available about them. So as, as I started to get interested in, as, as I started to read little bits and pieces, it was these four women who had the strongest expression of vocation. And that's really what, what drew me in, what I was most interested in. It's interesting. All four women struggled throughout their lives to, to make a place for themselves, both as women, as you said, and within the discourse of art and artists. Did did the sense of you know the need to be a writer to 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 have this vocation did it mean the same thing in, in the early and mid twentieth century as it does today? That's a really interesting question too. Possibly, possibly not quite the same. I think it was in the early twentieth century very much influenced by the Romantics, the Romantic era, which was just behind the Victorian era, and uh, yeah. Although you know, it's really interesting because. If anything, I think the idea of vocation has has strengthened in the 20th century uh, to the point where I think, as I say briefly in the book, everybody, every every pop singer and every, I don't know, every model or whatever will say that they have a vocation, they have a calling. In fact, I remember seeing a, a truck recently which had on the side, um, my, my passion is delivery. And I'm thinking, you know, anything can be a passion and having a passion is kind of really trendy now and you have to be passionate about whatever you're doing. So the idea of vocation as a passion for, for what you do has really kind of blo- blossomed and ballooned in the late 20th century. But in, uh, yeah, but it's it sort of become a bit detached from that sense of inner deep identity that I see in all four of these women and in, and in other writers from that earlier part of the century where it, it's not so much, you know, hey, I really enjoy my job or I'm really committed to doing a good job for you. It's really, this is who I am at my heart, in my core. I am a writer. I am this person. And that in itself is something that's really hard to explain or unpack or understand. It's a mix of psychology and culture. It has to be cultural because, the, I mean, you can't have a writer unless you have a culture in which there are books and, the, and the printing presses and people who buy books. And, you know, so uh, just not to digress too much, but one of the things that really interested me about Ruth Park is that she says in her wonderful autobiographies that she wanted to be a writer before she'd ever even seen a book. So she didn't have that sort of cultural frame. She just wanted to tell stories and she wanted to write stuff down. But of course, you can't want to write stuff down if you don't know how to write. So it's still very much framed by the culture. But but it it is actually, it's also connected to some deep part of the self. Yeah. And, And what that psychological process is that kind of seizes upon that identity and makes it your own and then will not let it go. I don't know. I don't know how to explore that. All I can do is trace it, trace its existence and its reality. So let's talk a little bit about some of the women who you chronicle. You start with the Tasmanian poet and librettist Gwen Harwood, who you've already you've just said uh, you're, you're diving even further uh, deeply in, into her, her life. Uh, what's really interesting about her is that you say that her biggest struggle was a psychological one. Uh, what what demons did she battle, as it were? <laughs> yeah, she really struggled to be able to take the time that she needed to be an artist and to actually claim that identity as an artist because to her being an artist was being egotistical and being self-centered and being independent and even she writes somewhere um being being single like not being married but she in fact married quite young at 25 and then she had four children and she really she 
her own image of the of the artist was actually quite traditional. It was the quite traditional male artist. It was it was Beethoven and it was Byron and uh, it was like um, I don't know if you know Drusilla Majeska's Stravinsky's Lunch in that uh, in that book. Majeska talks about how Stravinsky insisted that there be utter silence at the meals that he had with his family because he couldn't be disrupted from the creative thoughts that were coursing through his great mind. So the, his wife would, would would tiptoe around, put the plates down really quietly, make sure the children were really quiet. And, you know, Howard, there's no way that a woman can be in that role if she's married with children in the 1950s and 1960s. She can't be the one that everybody's tiptoeing around and, and, and serving meals to. On the contrary, she's the one who's serving the meals and she's the one who has to make it quiet and peaceful for her husband. In this case, he was a, a, a philosopher, a linguist at, at University of Tasmania. So she really had this desperate need to write and she also could not bring herself to neglect the needs of those around her. And that's partly just out of love. She loved her children. She loved her husband. But also she was part of community. And I think there was this underlying sense that uh, conflicting with this idea of the Byronic artist that actually to be an artist you don't necessarily have to be cut off from others, that other people and that connection to others, that caring connection to others can feed your work, which is in fact I think what happened with Gwen, but she wasn't sure. So she really felt that she was risking everything by being by fulfilling that conventional woman's role. But she also wanted to fulfill that conventional woman's role and she wanted to be the artist. So this, this huge conflict right at the centre of her being that was manifest every single day in her making that decision to get the three meals on the table and do all that all that cooking and cleaning and uh, in, in those days in the 50s they didn't even have a washing machine just the amount of work involved is really quite incredible and so on top of that she had to try to make a space for herself to be to be a writer she I, I quote in in that chapter I think um, some lines from her poem lip service where she talks about heart beating at flesh like like a winged stone and unable to fly and that's just such a vivid and powerful image for me of, of what it was like for her. I actually feel like her poetry is about domesticity and the conflict between the individual and the community is is not as well known as it should be outside of Australia. It's really it's really up there with, with Sylvia Plath and um, some of the other, uh, maybe Adrienne Reich and uh, other writers like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the next chapter, you, you look at the West Australian poet Dorothy Hewitt and it's you know it seems that she didn't handle kind of the expectations as well as Gwen in some senses. The toll that it took mentally and physically is really sometimes difficult to read. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about her. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm interested to, to hear you say that. Yeah, Dorothy, she was much more impetuous and much kind of more out there as a personality than Gwen. She was only three years younger than her. She was born in 1923. Uh, but she lived at the other side of the country in, in Western Australia. And, yeah, she wanted to be an artist. And to her, the artist was the bohemian. The artist lived a completely free life and just did what you – know, followed the dictates of her blood, like uh, D.H. Lawrence says. And she just, you know, as a young woman, she just flung herself into that with complete – uh, abandon and you know she loved to look like a bohemian wear the beret and the black velvet and and she wanted to have sex she wanted to have lots of sexual experience but this was the 1930s and the 1940s and she lived in a really conservative community as they all were in in uh, in Australia at that time I think and 
uh, I should say that she was writing as well. She was writing poetry. She actually won the Mianjin Poetry Prize at 18, which was a huge coup. And people couldn't believe it when they found out that the, the person who'd, who'd written that prize-winning poem was, was an 18-year-old girl, in quotation marks. And she was writing plays and she was writing everything she could. But meanwhile, she was flinging herself into these relationships. And her community and her family just turned against her. And she, she describes this many, many years later in her play, The Chapel Perilous, which is uh, just a landmark play in Australian, uh, Australian drama uh, history. And you can really see the venom with which the community turn on her. All, there are scenes where all of these people gather and they just point at her and they just abuse her and they call her a whore and the town bike and who do you think you are? And, you know, they just bring her down. And this is actually her own experience, but it's it's really vividly, painfully depicted in The Chapel Perilous. And so, yeah, she, she when a relationship broke up and she felt utterly rejected by her family and her community and she just, her, she, she had this huge kind of, huge sense of herself but she was also really really vulnerable sometimes those two things are the the flip side so when all of that was punctured she was just devastated and she tried to kill herself at, at the age of 21 which is thank goodness she did not succeed but at that point she she just she she's a person of great extremes she she basically abandoned writing almost straight away and and threw herself into communism she joined the communist party and she talks about this in her own autobiography about how she could give herself over to this this large cause and she was a person of great passion and she she gave her passion to this cause but within the communist party as it was then she wasn't able to express herself everything she wrote had to be in fa- to support the, the communist cause and so she was really an organizer at that time and she she moved to sydney she was in a de facto relationship she had uh three boys and and uh, her de facto husband was increasingly uh, insane i think is probably the best way to put it and and increasingly threatening her but meanwhile she was trying to support the workers and support the workers cause and support people and she, she says it was a, as a happy time but she was completely detached from her her core self of being a writer and then very gradually as she freed herself from that relationship and as she returned to work uh, professional work and and regained some sense of herself she actually began to write again and uh, uh, yeah and and then she really once then she she, she married for the third time and had more children she and she actually had six children in total which is incredible if you think about it and she became an uh, an academic and then she became a poet and a playwright and a novelist and the most prolific writer with the most huge amount of energy and uh, so she kind of came back from that but the, the last half of her life was still this struggle to be able to be a woman who is sexually free but who is also an artist, so a woman who can live with the chaos of sexual freedom and especially for a woman to be sexually free brings a huge amount of chaos in its wake culturally because it's it's just culturally not acceptable but as well as her interactions with men which are sometimes highly dangerous for women as well as just, just chaos making. And her, her fear was that the chaos of that, of that life was actually directly militated against the peace and the security and the, and the solitariness that's needed for the artist's life. But she couldn't give it up either because she felt that that sexual freedom was essential not only to who she was but to who she was as an artist. But, of course, there are no images of – there are no kind of foremothers who show, who model this, this sexual freedom – 
linking with this artistic freedom or the artistic creativity. So she had to work it out. Could she do it herself? And yeah, her life was just often just one blow after another. She was incredibly strong person, I think. And uh, yeah, I, I talk in the book about her central image for this is the Lady of Shalott. And she just plays with this in, from Tennyson's poem, the, the lady who sits in her room weaving a tapestry based on what she can see in a mirror that's reflecting what's outside the room. So she doesn't actually experience life for herself. She experiences it as, a, as an image. And, and she can weave then and make this beautiful art, but her life is constrained and curtailed and limited. And at the point where she leaps up and rushes to the window and looks out for herself, and she's drawn to that by love, by, by sexual desire for this handsome man riding past, at that moment she's doomed and she has no choice but to die. And for Dorothy, that was a central, incredibly potent, incredibly frightening image of the woman artist. And she just worked through it again and again in her poems and in her plays, trying to find a version of the story in which the lady could leave the tower and grab the prince and, and fulfill herself and still live and still create. Emery, you've done such a good job of, of weaving together this biography and literary criticism with all the literary references and, and cultural history. Uh, the, the book, the book is, is really, a, really a wonderful read. I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, that's Anne-Marie Priest. Uh, she's a writer and lecturer at Central Queensland University. Her new book is called A Free Flame, Australian Women Writers and Vocation in the 20th Century, published by UWA Publishing in February 2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.